30 days. 30 days is all it takes. 30 days of revolution is a here to share with you that it can happen. In five short years, I turned it all around. It was commitment, it was passion. Three things you can do to change your life. If you know how my life started out. I was an overweight man living in a one-room apartment. I'd reached my rock bottom. I turned it around. I am a living testament. 65 pounds happy. thinner. I feel yes. great. Yes. Things is all I did to change my life. Three things. Month of fury! 30 days! No red No refining! That's two things that we talked about. Number three. Oh, number three. This drives most people crazy. You're not gonna like it. This is easy so far. If you can give this up for 30 days, it will. I guarantee you, change your life. You will be a new person. Are you ready? Are you ready? No orgasm. No! Orgasm! Oh. Commit with me. Have that commitment. Have that passion. 30 days. No orgasm. No orgasm. Don't do it. I guarantee you, every one of you has been on this drug of orgasm since you become sexual. Nothing wrong with it. It's, it's, it's difficult to stop. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to come. I'm not saying that at all. It's a great thing to come, right? Am I right? It's a great thing. Have you ever told your body no? Have you ever had it listen? I want commitment! I want passion! Yes! No orgasm for 30 days. You need to be committed. You need to be passionate. For 30 days, 30 days, month of fury! I swear it will change your life. You know the number. Give us a call. Juice it up. Juice by you. Juice by you. If your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would reason you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck like that one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm up. And this is episode number 305, Requiem for a Dream. A movie that, when I watched as a teenager, shook me to my core, disturbed me, really had an impact on me. I think I was a cigarette smoker at the time. I remember just lighting up a cigarette afterwards, taking like a puff and like throwing it on the ground. You're like, I can't be addicted to anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess that was probably the point of the movie was right. to rattle you to your core. Certainly did. A scared straight Oof. type situation. Little did I know that one of the friends that I would initially watch this film with would very shortly start dabbling in the world of heroin. Yikes. Was not deterred, I guess. No. This seems like fun. 
Let's get into this. This seems like a road that I would be interested in going down. So before Matt and I go ass to ass <laughs> discussing <laughs> yeah. Requiem for a Dream, everybody's favorite uplifting picture of the mm-hmm. early 2000s. But I was saying to you, it is one of those ones that's just always available in physical media. Right. I would always see it. The DVD at Best Buy and Walmart back in the day. Seems like there's been multiple 4Ks of it already. Yeah, so people must be buying it and watching it. Yeah. Follow the show on Twitter, at GreatestPod. And make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate the recent reviews over the last couple of weeks. Sorry for the... Mm-hmm. delay we're gonna try to do two episodes this week to make up for last week so hold on to your butts we'll see how it goes when they can actually get released but we're we're planning on not missing a beat even though we are delayed yeah well i always like giving people a chance to catch up and then it seems like when we do take a break all of a sudden that's when these new reviews and comments and interactions start flowing people in. are afraid we've just said yeah. fuck it we're not coming back <laughs> no one cares about this yeah. show if you'd like a sticker, let us know on Twitter. Matt was away for a little while, so we did have some sticker request situations happening, but that should be resolved shortly. So if you haven't Definitely. gotten yours yet, hold on. Hold I'll tight. take care of it. And listener requests. As mentioned several times, they do cost money now. Please reach out in the DMs on Twitter. Now... I'm just remembering that there was a situation where mm. somebody asked about if they don't have Twitter or Letterboxd oh. or something. I guess I I didn't make an email yet, but stay tuned. Not the next episode because we're recording them both back to back. But in the next coming weeks, hopefully we'll get an email address off the ground and I'll probably check it once or twice and then never again. <laughs> no, just, I'll try to check it at least weekly. You're just going to have to keep listening. That'll give people another method of contacting us or, or whatever and as always find us on letterboxd zach1983 and matt crosby on there basically if you have any questions though reach out on twitter at greatest pod we'll work through whatever the situation is be it sticker be it listener request be it other monetary donation Ooh. or just a question or comment or concern <laughs> about the show <laughs> we do get a lot of concerns the listener requests have slowed down since the format change, so our plan worked. That's true. Although, I was thinking that it was kind of similar to last year anyway. Yeah. Remember, there was a big rush at the end of the year, and I was I like, know. all right, you got to get them in because we're going to put them once a month or whatever right. and that whole thing. So it was kind of the same end of the year madness with yeah. a bunch of requests and then planning it out. Or Well, whatever. the window slammed shut. Right. Let's get into Requiem for a Dream. We're doing a back-to-back recording here, so don't want to go too crazy. Mm-hmm. 2000, directed by Darren Aronofsky, screenplay by Aronofsky and Hubert Selby Jr., based on Selby's 1978 novel of the same name. Budget, $4.5 million, box office, $7.4 million. The film was nominated for one Academy Award, Ellen Burstyn, Best Actress in a Leading Role. When preparing for her Oscar campaign, Burston was being persuaded by the producers to campaign as Best Supporting Actress. Shocked by this notion, she rightfully refused. 
The Good producers felt she was guaranteed to win if she was placed in the supporting actress category. Eventually, Julia Roberts won for Aaron Brockovich. Mm. A win that is somewhat controversial, but yeah. it is what it is. Movie stars usually get a turn yep. at a certain point to win, so that happened. I don't really think of her as the lead role in the movie. I, well, I think of it as more of an ensemble amongst the four. Yeah, but I do think that she's by herself most of the time. True. I yeah. think it's sort of a leading actress performance, Definitely. not necessarily based sense. on screen time, yep. although... She definitely has more screen time than mm-hmm. Jennifer Conley, who would be the other actress in the film. This is what Aronofsky does best. I think we've come to understand that. He is the king of ultimate bummers. Right. Although neither of us have seen The Whale yet. Well. I don't really want to go down that whole rabbit hole, but I me mean, and you just don't see new movies Yeah, anymore. that's true. <laughs> For a good chunk of my life, probably for a decade of time, Aronofsky was on my list of directors that I was always interested in what was going on with him. I would say all the way up through Black Swan. I'm still interested, but it's not an immediate must-see anymore. Yeah, yeah, same. I think that sort of changed with Noah, which was a very boring film, which I think Jennifer Connelly was in that as well. A different direction. This was a film that I discovered during the big VHS rental era of my life, and it's sort of funny because it piggybacking on what you were saying right in the outset about mm-hmm. the shock value of the film, but there definitely is a time period in your life, if you get into films, where you start learning about the world through cinema, mm. especially the world that isn't your world. Right. Obviously, I didn't know anything about drug addiction really or drugs or this side of life living in sort of a boring suburban world and it it definitely (laughs) makes you think that you're learning stuff i think now watching this movie a few decades later it has sort of a different feel now yeah i still think it's powerful i still think it's a good movie and it's it's well made and executed but there's some goofiness to it too Mm -hmm. but almost i think because i've changed Not that the movie was ever better or worse than I was thinking. It's more you start to understand the characters differently and you start to see the absurdity and the immaturity of Harry and Marion. Right. And you think that their love is so doomed, like almost a Romeo and Juliet type thing. But then you go back and you look at this stuff and you're like, they're just idiots. Yes. They don't know anything. They seem like they have street smarts and this tough edge because they do drugs and live right above the poverty line and stuff. But most of the stuff they do is just bad decisions and then no accountability for their actions, no remorse, no thinking things through, selfishness. I know that part of that is what drug addiction is and what you turn into, but... I think that when you view this as like a teenager or something, if you're in high school the first time you see it, I think that it feels like more of a grand, doomed right. thing between these two lovers. And they seem very real because they have those poignant moments where he's talking about her being the most beautiful girl that he's ever seen. And they seem very genuine and real. And you're like, oh, God, it's so tragic what happens to them. And it is in, oh, the, yeah. in the real sense <laughs> of tragedy, where it's your own fault. The Greek tragedy sense the punch was far less for me than it was whatever it was 15 20 years ago that i first watched this but i can remember my friend telling me about this movie and saying 
Yeah, I mean, it's really messed up and intense, but there's a fun part of the movie where they're slinging drugs and it's, there's some excitement to it. And I watched it and I'm like, I got to tell you, didn't really feel fun or exciting. First of all, that lasts for about 30 seconds yeah, I know. in terms of screen time. And second of all, there's nothing really that fun about it. I know. <laughs> because uh, they're junkies from the outset. Right. So even when they're doing drugs at the beginning, you're kind of like, oh my God. Yeah, it's bleak the whole way through. Selby's novel was optioned by Aronofsky and producer Eric Watson. Selby had always intended to adapt the novel into a film as he had written a script years prior to Aronofsky approaching him. Aronofsky was enthusiastic about the story and developed the script with Selby despite initial struggles to obtain funding for the film's production. He and the cast speak of the film being about addictions in general and not just drugs with a theme of loneliness and avoidance of reality in different ways. So think all of your hopes and dreams falling apart, come crashing down. So they only had $1,000 to pay for the rights of the film, but that was a lot of money for Aronofsky and Watson at the time because Pi had a lot of indie buzz, but it did not make them rich or anything like sure. that. And it wasn't as if there was a ton of interest in this project, which I just was alluding to. So it wasn't like there was tons of studios throwing money into it. Aronofsky was not interested in the film as a junkie movie or a film about drug paraphernalia. He was more interested in the before and after of drug use. One of his influences while working on animated shorts in film school was Jan Svank... <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, really. Svankmedger, a Czech animator who, according to Aronofsky, uses a lot of before and after photos. Aronofsky used this as an influence when attempting to create a film about what drugs do to you physically, mentally, and emotionally. And just to add to that, the word heroin is never actually said once in the entire film. And even though they do have that quick cutting of a bunch of different visuals to indicate when they use the drugs, you don't really see it a lot until yeah. the very end when right. he's sticking the needle into the gangrenous arm and you want to vomit everywhere. Disgusting. If it wasn't for that part, it's hard to tell. There's times where it seems like it's cocaine, but they're also shown taking pills, too. Oh, yeah, they dabble with other drugs. I think the big clue that it's not cocaine, though, is just the way they act. Right. I mean, they're completely, like, zombie uh, yes. out when they do it. Aronofsky initially wanted to cast younger characters, and Selby agreed with this. Early to mid-teens, somewhere between 14 and 16, mm. to enhance the impact of Rough. the drugs and what would happen to these people. However, producers pushed back and said there's just no way that this could be released. I think and that's fair. He eventually relented. Yeah, I'm wondering if he meant as is, the script as is. Yikes. Then it would be a completely other movie. I think everyone would be in jail or something. Right. I don't know. <laughs> but I do get it. It is convenient that the cast is mostly around the age of 30. So it doesn't quite hit the same way as when a lot of people are sucked into the world of drugs when they are younger. Oh, yeah teenagers early 20s something like that pretty rough scene though even at the start of the movie the whole life is selling his mom's tv to buy drugs yeah good lord yeah there's the a before whole is shame not great. spiral <laughs> yeah as with aronofsky's previous film pie montages of extremely short shots were used throughout the film such techniques are sometimes referred to as hip-hop montage but are also employed in traditional cinema, such as Man with a Movie Camera, 
while an average 100-minute film has 600 to 700 cuts, Requiem for a Dream features more than 2,000. Split screen is used extensively along with extremely tight close-ups, long tracking shots, including shots where the camera is strapped to an actor and facing them, known as snorri cam, and time-lapse photography are also prominent stylistic devices. Or as I call the camera in the face, the MTV's fear version of filmmaking. (laughs) There's definitely a very claustrophobic feel to the entire movie. Yeah, even when I didn't know one thing about films Uh and seeing this, you knew that it had style to spare. There's definitely a difference between Requiem for a Dream and the majority of other films you're seeing. Definitely. In 1999-2000-2001. Aronofsky alternates between extreme close-ups and extreme distance from the action with sharp cuts between reality and the character's fantasies. The camera work also forces the viewer to explore the character's state of mind, hallucinations, visual distortions, and inaccurate sense of time. This is especially noticeable and prominent in the Ellen Burstyn sequences, but the other characters as well. The average length of scenes also shortens as the film progresses from around 90 seconds to two minutes in the beginning until the climactic scenes, which are cut very rapidly, accompanied by incidental music. After the climax, there's a short period of silence and serenity. Pixelation and a fisheye lens are also techniques used to help reinforce the effect of drugs and the viewer's distance from the character. To summarize, he was throwing everything he had into this everything but the kitchen sink yeah and i would say pulls back from all of that as he would move forward in his career yeah it's not always necessary to do shit like this sure it's exhausting and right the viewer doesn't need to be subjected to it for every kind of story i think in this particular story it happens to work because there's this paranoid feeling this isolated feeling this doomed feeling and then depending on what substances are being ingested by the characters that's reflected in the filmmaking style. Mm -hmm. Although mother kind of has that erratic pace and anxiety to it as well. Yeah. It starts out slower Uh and then yeah, it gets more frantic as it goes. (laughs) I actually really like mother. I know a lot of people hate it. It was a wild ride. I'll say that. I think that it holds up better now because you've seen what we've got over the last like four or five years. You're like, Nothing is interesting. Nobody tries anything. It may not be everybody's cup of tea, and you might bang your head on the table saying, I can't believe how (laughs) obvious and dumb this metaphor is. Allegory is. Yeah, but I don't know. Yeah, it was still a unique theatrical experience, I'd say. Complete with an excellent song choice for the end credits. What was it? It was like, It's the End of the World. By R.E.M.? No, no, no. no. (laughs) Like Like the old... I don't know. I don't remember. It's been used in other shit, too. You look that up, and I'm going to yeah. talk about the music in this movie, because I think that Clint Mansell's score is a character in and of itself and has gone on to just as much. End of the World by Skeeter Davis. The <laughs> Lux Eterna portion of the music composed by Mansell for the soundtrack has often been used since in many other contexts, such as trailers for films including... The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, which I can distinctly remember. The Da Vinci Code, I Am Legend, Man on Fire, Sunshine, Uh many others. And soundtracks for video games, such as Total Minor Forge, Assassin's Creed, 
and background music for TV programs and advertisements. It is also commonly used as promotional and or entrance music for many college and professional sports teams, including Notre Dame, Missouri State University, Boston Celtics, and Virginia Commonwealth University basketball teams, the University of Alabama and Bowdoin college football teams, Arsenal Football Club, and England Rugby Union team. It's basically as famous as anything I know. from this movie. It's outlived the movie, but also when I hear it playing in an arena, I think of heroin. Yeah. <laughs> I guess they're sort of banking on the fact that outside of cinephiles, Requiem for a Dream is still pretty cult, and yeah, they yeah. think that most people won't have that association. Sure. But yeah, it is weird. I think that Requiem is an awesome movie and deserving of a soundtrack that goes this hard, but at the same time, you're like, wow, it's almost shocking how iconic the soundtrack became because of its use in other things. Hopefully, Mansell made a lot of money from it. I don't really know how that works. Like, who owns it? I don't oh, yeah. know. Originally, Requiem for a Dream was to be rated NC-17. Not a huge surprise. No. It was appealed by Aronofsky, claiming that cutting any portion of the film would dilute its message. It was denied. So Artisan Entertainment opted to release the film unrated, which yeah. is surprising that it still made $7.4 million because the reason why you go along with the MPAA and you take their ratings is because it's sometimes hard to get into right. theaters if you don't have it. I don't think this one was going to be impacted too much. The people that needed to see it saw it. Yeah, yeah. An R-rated version was released on video with cuts made during the big sequence at the end, but... <laughs> this really was, um, like, I don't even to... think you can find that version. Oh, I guess you can, but that's not the version they release anymore. They just released that unrated version. There's certain things that are coming to light, hit the news, and you'll be like, oh, yeah, this is unrated, and it's a, we're immediately like, okay, we need to see this in the theater. <laughs> that's who this type of movie is for. Yeah, but it was a different world, though. Yeah, that's true. Because of the internet wasn't that pervasive. I don't know how you would even know about all this stuff sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's weird because we're old enough to remember like a world pre-internet and pre-cell phones and stuff, and yet I can't figure out how anyone did anything ever. I know. Like, how did you even go anywhere? Like, <laughs> how do you know how to get somewhere? <laughs> I don't know. How did no. that happen? That is true. It was a world of mystery at that point. I think once I realized that IMDb was a website that existed... My life changed forever. For those of you who like to check out the film we are discussing, I know I should probably do this way up top at the front rather than wait till we bury it in there, but you can find Requiem for a Dream streaming for free on a bunch of different apps. None of the major players, though, so it's, I think most of these you're probably going to have to watch commercials, if not all of them. But you got Tubi. Roku Channel, Pluto TV, Freevee, Plex, Redbox, all free. So check it out, or of course you can rent it. And as Matt said, it's, it's available. always available. All over the place. Yeah. 4K, Blu-ray, DVD. Anytime they come up with a new way to watch movies, a new format, they're like, what are the first five movies we're releasing? Requiem for a Dream is always one I of know. them. They're like, we got to release this. <laughs> and I was wondering if that's just because, A, it's cult and has a cult following, but it must just be that... The rights to it must be easily available. Well, I think Lionsgate has bought up all of those like smaller things, so yeah, yeah. they just own all of that stuff. Sure. I don't know. It's not like in the uh, Disney vault or anything. <laughs> no. <laughs>
Yeah, Maid Marian is a Disney princess. <laughs> Living in her black tar heroin castle. Yeah, with little John. <laughs> One of the great all-time cinematic characters. <laughs> I like to think that this is where that bartender from Roadhouse, played by Keith David, went to. That's right. <laughs> if we were going to say canonically, which character of Keith David's? Is it the thing? Is it they live? No, it's that bartender that's in the background during Roadhouse. <laughs> He's come all the way to New York City and become a heroin dealer yeah, pimp. living in like a luxury pad. <laughs> He's the only guy that's got heroin in New York City, and he ain't giving it up for money. Right. <laughs> Folks, fair warning. This movie is dark, and if you can't laugh, then... We gotta bring some levity to it. Yeah, please don't listen to this. <laughs> I have a feeling we're gonna be walking on the edge of appropriateness a I'd couple so. of times. Well, we live in that space. Yeah, but usually we're not doing movies that are this depressing. That is true. I was putting off watching this as long as I possibly could. I watched it this morning. <laughs> the trauma from my old experiences watching it. I don't really find it that traumatic anymore. Yeah, I know. it. The only thing that like really bothered me was when he puts the needle in the... That's horrible. The wound. I did have to look away at that point. Everything else, I don't know, maybe we're more sex positive now, but I'm like, all right, so she yeah. had to put a dildo in her but ass. Even, I mean, deal. I, when I saw it as a teenager, the electroshock therapy stuff, yeah, it's dark. I did not enjoy. It's a dark movie. Yeah. Let's jump into it here. The film opens with an infomercial. Join us in creating excitement. Juice, 1-900-976-JUICE. Christopher McDonald. The always slimy. As Tappy Tibbins, a grifter, motivational speaker type, self-help guru. He's constantly on the television throughout the film. Definitely we'll like get... a whole Tim Robbins thing. Yeah. Oh, that, is that we'll... the guy's name? No, Tim Robbins is the actor. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's oh, It didn't seem right. We'll get back to the, the Tappy Tibbins thing in a bit. Tony Robbins. So we have Sarah Goldfarb, played by Ellen Burstyn. She is a widow who lives alone in a Brighton Beach apartment. She spends the vast majority of her time watching television, which is where Tappy Tibbins comes in, which becomes almost this hypnotic thing. I put this in the same category as kids in the sense that it's not exactly a billboard for New York City. It doesn't really seem like a place you want to be. No, and I think that it it definitely highlights the isolation and loneliness that you can have even though you're surrounded by millions of people definitely especially for sarah all the apartment situations are not very comforting a number of actresses were considered for the role of sarah goldfarb but many of them rejected the part faye dunaway turned it down wow ellen burston also initially rejected the part due to the depressing content but her manager convinced her to see aronofsky's previous work pie she was impressed enough and agreed to be cast in the lead role. It's a fucking tour de force performance. This oh, yeah. will probably become a recurring theme throughout the episode, something that we keep returning to. And the first time I ever saw this, I had no idea that Ellen Burstyn was kind of a unique get, that she had this whole career. Well, I think once you reach a certain age in Hollywood, you can get a lot of these actresses that were big time right, from right. a different era because they want to work and there's not as many parts for them. She herself also considers this her best acting performance and even more challenging than The Exorcist. 
during this opening scene here where Harry, her son, played by Jared Leto, and Sarah are arguing, you can hear the orchestra tuning up as part of like the background, mm-hmm. almost the soundtrack. You hear them tuning up, which okay. is weird. And Aronofsky says that the idea was that it's an orchestra tuning up because what we were about to see was a requiem, like a performance of a requiem. Aronofsky states that the main focus with the film was in creating a musical composition, one that climaxes throughout the film's runtime. In addition to having a camera mounted to her for certain sequences, Burston spent four hours every morning being fitted with prosthetics, wearing four different necks, both fat and emaciated, two different fat suits, a 40-pound and 20-pound suit, and nine different wigs. Oh, yeah. It's definitely a transformation. Hopefully, an actress would still be allowed to do something like this now. I know that we're not supposed to have skinny people put on fat suits, but obviously, I think in certain situations, you have to be able to do it. Sure. For things like this, where there has to be a transformation all within one film. Unless you want to do the Christian Bale thing, which seems unhealthy. Right, yeah. The film begins just like Selby Jr.'s novel. As Aronofsky points out, the first line of the book is, Harry locked his mom in the closet. As soon as he read this, he knew it would be a powerful way of opening a film. Aronofsky appreciated how subjective Selby's novel was, something the director strove for with Pi. Aronofsky wanted to capture the subjective tone for the film to put you in the viewpoint of the main character, which is why the opening sequence is a split screen. That way, both Harry and Sarah are the focal points on their own. Mm -hmm. You have both. It's almost a weird split screen because it seems like you'd be able to capture them both in the same shot. That first well, one where they're on both sides of the door. Yeah. And then, well, there's that also that split screen where he's next to Marion in bed. It's almost like just cutting out three inches right. or something of space. It's definitely an interesting choice. But I guess he wanted it to be a real door. So you yeah, couldn't yeah. really have them. True. Unless you were using a set where it was a fake door. So Sarah's son, Harry, is a heroin addict, along with his friend Tyrone, played by Marlon Wayans, and his girlfriend Marion, played by Jennifer Conley. Harry takes her television to pawn for a quick buck. There's a lot of obvious guilt and anguish and self-loathing that would have to accompany someone doing this particular task. It seems bottom of the barrel. Yeah. One of the things I guess we should point out is that the novel was released in 1978. The film comes out 22 years later in the year 2000. Aronofsky intentionally tried to keep the time period a little ambiguous. I think that he's successful at that. It could take place in the year 2000. It could take place in the 90s. It's unlikely that it takes place any earlier than like the late 80s, I guess, Mm -hmm. but... I'm sure if you nitpick and you go through, you can find stuff that it, that makes it more connected to the year 2000. Like but time stamps it. Like I think in the novel, for example, Sarah constantly watches soap operas and like very specific shows and gotcha. stuff. And he was like, no, we want to do something else with that. And I think that's one of Aronofsky's biggest contributions is the whole juice by thing and the Tappy Tibbins thing. Because I think it's pretty much invented for the movie. Yeah. To make it, harder to, to nail down a specific time period. Oof, man, just the thought of the nonstop viewing of infomercial style television yeah. just gives me goosebumps. 
Originally, the studio was more interested in having a trio of Giovanni Ribisi, Nev Campbell, and Dave Chappelle in the lead parts. That would have been an interesting movie. I know Nev Campbell ultimately turned it down because of the nudity required. I don't really know what the deal was with Ribisi and Chappelle, but I actually think that the trio they landed on is better. It feels that way to me, too. This seems like a Jared Leto role. I like Rabisi, Campbell, and Chappelle, but I didn't really know who Jared Leto was because I didn't watch my so-called life until mm-hmm. after this because I, it wasn't something I watched when it was current. So I didn't really know who he was. So he's basically an unknown to me. Jennifer Conley, I know she was a child star and stuff, and I probably had seen Labyrinth, but I didn't know who... I, it wasn't yeah, making yeah. that connection. She was still a nobody to me. That's true. Marlon Wayans was the most familiar of the <laughs> yeah. three. If I picked this DVD box up at the time, that's what I've been like. Oh, Marlon Wayans is like the fourth build person. He's the biggest star. <laughs> I'm saying that their anonymity was a benefit. Mm-hmm. I knew who Giovanni Ribisi was somehow. See, because I, I was a big suburbia fan. By the time I watched this, I already knew Jared Leto as like 30 Seconds to Mars, dude. What year did you see this? Like 2005. I didn't watch oh, wow. it yeah, for years. I didn't even realize 30 out. Seconds to Mars was around in that, that early, but I guess they probably were. Yeah. I was never really into that scene. No, but it was <laughs> of the time for me. I think if Nev Campbell was in the film, it would have been much higher profile. Well, because I think so, yeah. she's coming off of Scream, Wild Things, The Craft. She was well known. Yeah. I think it has a totally different vibe, though. Leto, of course, as he always does, went full weirdo method acting, virtually living on the streets, undergoing a physical transformation. As you alluded to, it's a dangerous thing to do, but he lost nearly 30 pounds for the movie. Which is something that he's also been known for doing several times in his career. The full cast, I guess you could say, actually all really did their due diligence with the research and diving into these parts. And by the end of the opening credits of the film... You totally get it. You get the vibe, the atmosphere. You know a couple of the characters. You understand the melancholy feel. You can almost tell from the music, which hasn't quite hit that Lux Eterna track yet, but it's all very reminiscent and similar, and it gives this heavy vibe to it, and you're like, mm-hmm. okay, I've got a sinking feeling already that this right. is going to be a happy movie. I know. <laughs> As it starts to unfold, I think the thing that would always hit me at my younger age of watching this was just that profound sadness of you grow up thinking your life is going to be some way and then within the context of this movie what these people's lives become you're missing half your arm horrific the first title that drops down onto the screen is summer the actor mark margolis who we would remember from just a few months ago as playing shadow in scarface the assassin that's right he says your mother needs you like a moose needs a hat rack a lot of familiar faces we did thelma and louise last year with christopher mcdonald most people would know him from happy gilmore of course but yeah very lo- solid supporting cast yeah. i do like that this guy keeps going along with this though yeah well i know it's money but at a certain point it's Dude, come on. I guess, yeah. (laughs) It almost seems like he's doing it for Sarah because he's afraid of what will happen if he tries to sell the TV somewhere else or whatever. Just sort of like move it along, not try to rattle the boat too much. Each time after the drugs are used, it cuts to a shot of an eye 
with the pupil dilating. Oh, yeah. While this would be true after the speed-type drug Sarah is using later in the film, for heroin, the exact opposite is true. The pupil should constrict. Hence, heroin users are often said to have pinned eyes. Their pupils shrink to the size of pinpricks. Ah, yes. In fact, all opiate users have pinned pupils. Although, much like the song, I would say the dilated pupil is as connected to this movie as anything else. They always use that image for the posters, the cover of the physical media. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting shots like that, little insert things, and then the sound usage. (laughs) Yeah, but they also do that when... Sarah has to have those small portions of right. food and those like little sound things to indicate that she's consumed them. Oh, yeah. Like a egg cracking. Either way, Harry and Tyrone are helpless junkies. Marion is too, although we haven't really quite met her yet. What? <sighs> <sighs> what? <sighs> piece of this brody shit cut it up and off it we can double our money easy then we could buy us a couple of pieces and we got some whole nother shit going on that'd be righteous i bet in no time at all we could get a pound of pure straight from south of keeper that's what i'm talking about baby no hassles how's it going baby what's up buddy usual yeah it sounds good so, of course, these two think they can be dealers. This will be the answer to all their problems, their ticket, hopes and dreams. But an early indication that perhaps they aren't cut out for that world is that we're seeing an, a hallucination from Harry's point of view where he steals that cop's gun and then they're playing, like, keep away yeah. from the cop. And you're thinking, okay, they seem like they're pretty far down the path of drug dependency if this is what's going on in their minds. Right. Maybe they shouldn't Although, go down this road. I don't know. I often am thinking of horrible things, you know, <laughs> and acting them out. Well, I don't know, but that's your life. No, no. It's like um, <laughs> if I'm in a situation where like heights is involved, for some reason I envision myself falling from Yeah, that's that's pretty common. Or some people have that overwhelming urge to jump. Yeah, yeah. For some reason. It's yeah. super weird. Sarah buys back her own TV. Okay, so her life is punctuated by watching these abrasive infomercials with Tappy Tib and join us in creating excellence. Juice. Juice by Sarah. Juice by Sarah. (laughs) And if you watch just the Christopher McDonald material, it is impressive, especially when you factor in that they shot all of it in one day with McDonald improvising a good deal of that. Oh, yeah. Because he has this whole story. If you watch it, I might actually use this for the opening clip, which they don't actually have it all together like this at any point in the movie, but I think it's just a weird 
extra thing where he's talking about he was fat and oh, yeah. broke and he loses his apartment then he's living in his car he worked at a grocery store then he gets fired for stealing food to eat Oof. and then he comes up with this whole way to change his life and then he buys back the grocery store it's this whole story i don't know it's crazy because he stopped eating red meat three things 30 days to change my life number one <laughs> no red meat number two no refined sugars number three number three they never tell you in the movie Number three, he never gets to it, and when the brief moment where you can see it on the dry erase board, it, he writes it in a way where you can't really tell. But if you do the research, you check out the deleted scenes, there's a lot of this material on YouTube. Number three is actually no orgasms. Wow. He's like, number three, oh, number three, oh, number three. And you're like, what could it be? What could it be? And then it's that, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Originally, number three was going to be no pills or something to that effect. And Aronofsky was heavily encouraged to not include that because although in the film we understand the dangers of abusing prescription drugs, some people actually need their prescriptions and you shouldn't have the message of rejecting them because people could have a psychotic break or endanger themselves in some way. Some people actually need to take pills. So they changed it to orgasms and then obscured it in a way where you can't really tell what it is in the film. But I think that this whole section, the juice stuff, the Tappy Tiffin stuff, it's an overlooked piece of Requiem for a Dream. I think when people think of this movie, they often aren't thinking of this. But it's very insidious. It's a predatory thing because nowadays the scams come from online. We know this. We have personal experience in this world. (laughs) Phone calls, threatening phone calls, or online, and and these things target the most vulnerable people. Old people who don't know exactly what's going on, they're confused, they're not up to date with technology, with what's going on in the world. They're lonely, so they're going to answer the phone, or they're going to answer a message on their computer. Next thing you know, they're out 500 bucks or whatever, because they're giving away. Because It's its own sad thing. Right, and that's sort of what Sarah is. The, I know. And in, these infomercials are targeting people like her. Right. Who are lonely. I know. Who are desperate for something. This eats at my soul. <laughs> also, some of the filmmaking with this stuff was, it kind of reminds me of that stuff that was kind of going on in the late 90s with like Natural Born Killers and um, Spun, where it's just very like weird and in your face. You mean like the filmmaking style? Yeah. Yeah. There's some shades of Oliver Stone a little bit, especially in... Some of that abrasive right. pace and the cutting. and I actually spilled Mountain Dew on my notes, so it's kind of... Well, speaking of drug addictions... It's going to be a rough ride. Yeah. I don't mean right now, but when I was doing the notes, and so who knows if I'm going to be able to read all of this. The film is littered with symbology, but I'm not talking about anything obscure or hard to decipher. This isn't some very in-depth, pretentious bullshit, because it's very easy to figure out what stuff means in this movie. Uh, Yeah, people aren't confused by the message. The heroine symbolizes Harry and Marion's dream to open a clothing store for Marion's designs. Tyrone's hopes and dreams are more tied to escaping the neighborhood he grew up in and receiving approval from his mother, who he often thinks about. Of course, their dreams are very quickly and easily corrupted, Because heroin can never symbolize hopes and dreams for real, especially if you're already hopelessly addicted to it. When Sarah receives a call stating that she has been selected to appear on a television game show, she resorts to a restrictive 
crash diet in an attempt to fit into a red dress yeah. that she wore at Harry's graduation. The red dress is another symbol. Nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Times when she was happy and not alone. Yeah. The feeling that maybe things can still work out for her and her son and everyone will be happy and together. You get the sense that that picture, that dress may have been the last good day. More or less, but the last good, strong memory. Yeah. Yeah. Marion and Harry are the young, doomed lovers tailor-made for Tumblr. (laughs) A lot of (laughs) gifts, quotes, saying sort of generic things to each other, but it's all very... This is the real love. We're together. We're in this. I know. And the truth, of course, is that Marion comes from money. She's got less than zero type parents just completely checked out. Right. I guess. Don't really know what she's up to. She's slumming it. Early in the film, before Harry references her getting cut off, you kind of have that common people the song feel oh yeah where she could still stop this all at any point and get out of this right unlike the other two who don't really have anything going on and then like i said they have that split screen in bed and i just wrote their love is immature but is it real is it sincere there always seems like there's an emptiness there well i think that they think it's real Mm -hmm. and sincere it's not as if they're lying sure deliberately but when push comes to shove, they both sell each other out pretty quickly. Now, Definitely. I know that's also a part of what gets destroyed yeah. by addiction. but And I think a big part of it is they enable each other. Oh, yeah, for sure. I you know something. Hmm. I always thought you were the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. Really? Ever since I first saw you. That's nice, Harry. Makes me feel really good. You know, other people have told me that before. And it was meaningless. preparation for her potential television appearance, Sarah has her friend dye her hair red. Although orange, maybe? If that's a red, I want to know, what's orange? (laughs) That's a good point. Now, the whole thing with Sarah that I think that you can overlook is that before she gets hooked on the pills, the speed to help her lose weight, there is a a very real food addiction. Mm -hmm. The refrigerator becomes a character. She has food hallucinations. Yeah, it's sort of like the uh, furnace in Home Alone. 
<laughs> it is a little yeah. bit. It's frightening. You want to know what's frightening? Yeah, As I've aged, I've started relating to Sarah more yeah, than yeah. the younger characters in the film. You'll be sitting in your apartment at night, and all of a sudden you hear like a loud noise from the little kitchenette back there. Yeah, except it's me actually just digging into like a box of cereal, like face first, like a raccoon. Ada told them it's gorgeous. Uh, We're going to make it a little darker tomorrow. Why dark? To go with my red dress. Yeah, but now it's looking like Madonna. This is not Madonna. And neither is this. But soon, I'm going on a diet. What diet are you on? Eggs and grapefruit. Oh, I was on that one. Lots of luck. It's not so bad. How long you been on it? All day. All day. It's one o'clock. <laughs> I'm thinking thin. She's thinking thin. My Louise, she lost 50 pounds just like that. Like that? Like what? Poof. What'd you do, put her in a sweat box? <laughs> no. She went to a doctor and he gave her pills you don't want to eat. So, what's so good about that? You mean I'm sitting here not thinking about chopped liver and pastrami al rye? You know, you really shouldn't talk like that when someone's on a diet. Oh, big deal. I'll sneak another wedge of grapefruit. <laughs> I'm thinking thin. Oh, Sarah, the mailman. Sarah Goldfarb, you have something for Sarah Goldfarb? I'm expecting something. It's Goldfarb, Goldfarb. Sarah Goldfarb. Is it it? That's it. It's oh, it. Come on. Wait, 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 Ty, let's do this right, man. Come on, baby. Naturally. Come on, Joe, come, come on. Come on. Let's hurry. Oh, come on. Don't I want you when you're here. Yeah, very too. Perfect. I want to come with you. Uh -huh. You know, maybe they'll send you to Tavern on the Green. You know, that's where they send all the stars. Yeah, I'm leaving eggs and grapefruit at Tavern oh, on the Green. No. I hope they have that. Okay. the mailman time. Here we are. Sarah fills out her form to be on TV. Harry and Tyrone buy the heroin that's going to kick off their big plan and immediately sample their own supply, even though Harry momentarily seems to realize it's going to be a mistake. But it doesn't take a whole hell of a lot to convince him that they should do it. Marion sees her therapist socially so that he won't tell her parents she stopped going to therapy because they might cut her off financially. Yeah, you think this guy's in a conflict of interest here or doing some unethical behavior? Harry is jealous, and this is the first time you get a sense of the painful reality. I just wrote a painful reality part one for their relationship. <laughs> yeah. The fact that she knows how much this bothers him, but she's going to do it anyway. Uh-huh. I feel like I've been in relationships yeah, like that. Yeah, we all have yeah. had that situation where you know what's going on, and she acts like it's not a thing. Right. Like, you know this guy is just trying to fuck her, and she's going to go, and you're, like, sitting at home just pissed. <laughs> <laughs> at the advice 
of her friend, Sarah visits a physician who prescribes her amphetamines to control her appetite. This is the first time I'm going to touch on this, and then we'll come back to it more later towards the end of the film. But one thing to keep in mind, whether you're viewing this film in the year 2000 when it was released or you're viewing it now in the year 2023... Hubert Selby Jr. wrote the novel in 1978 when medical institutions were not how they are now. And I think you have to keep that in mind now Mm -hmm. with the way that Sarah's treated and then at the end of the film when they're all (laughs) being treated terribly. Oh, yes. There was much more of a cynical feeling. Now, if you want to go back into One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, something like that. Immediately came to mind? Yeah. Obviously that wouldn't quite play out that way now especially going to an emergency room with an arm that's about to fall off and then they fucking call the police and tell them you're drug addicts and then somehow you're in jail yeah that part i was deeply questioning this time because i'm like what are they actually arrested for that's more like something out of like a an exploitation movie or something like in, in the 70s where you're like down south in the sticks right and they're just like, we're, we don't take kindly to your kind, and all of a sudden you're in jail or uh-huh. whatever. That kind of a thing, I think, is the idea. And I do think that was like a little bit more possible decades ago. But yeah, by the year 2000, that, that probably would not happen. But we'll get there later. Sure, sure. The only direction Darren Aronofsky gave Peter Maloney, who plays Sarah's doctor, known as Dr. Pill, was to never look at Ellen Burstyn. Maloney who you may remember from The Thing, later told Aronofsky it was the most difficult direction of his career because it is a very strange way to do a scene where you walk in and you never look at the other person. Definitely. But yeah, it's indicative of how these doctors who rely too much on prescriptions and pills and stuff, how they act. He doesn't even look at her. Yeah. Wouldn't be able to pick her out of a lineup. Don't want to go down a whole line here, but... I think a lot of like darkness has happened in the medical industry in, in terms of prescribing shit. Oh yeah, that's definitely like, still yeah irresponsibly, still a big issue. Although a lot of, a lot of times it's with opioids now, but it's it's whatever is like addictive. Yes, there's a fast cut montage of the start of Harry and Tyrone's enterprise. It is a unique feel. It feels like it's cut to the beat of the score, rapid yeah, yeah. fire, money piling up. It seems like they're on their way. A lot of the specific details are left unsaid, so you kind of have to go by visual clues. It does seem like Harry and Marion rent that storefront and are about to start out on this situation, but then that's when things turn and they start losing the money. It's actually surprising that they are doing as well as they are because they give you that little moment where Harry and Tyrone are like, well, let's try it, let's sample it. Right, yeah. The first rule of drug dealing, don't get high on your own supply, and they immediately break it. Also, when you factor in what happens later and then the potential for competition and gang warfare and the butting of the heads and stepping on the territories and all that stuff, how do these two fuck-ups like, avoid that for so long and I know. get money going? You do kind of feel like they're going to be at odds at some point like Harry and Tyrone, but it never happens. You mean with each other? Or yeah, with... yeah. No, not really. Purple in the morning, blue in the afternoon, orange in the evening. There's my three meals, Mr. Smarty Pants. And green at night, just like that, one, two, three, four. 
Sarah starts on her pills. She begins to lose weight rapidly, maintaining an adversarial relationship with her refrigerator. She's also excited by how much energy she has. She's maniacally cleaning her apartment, sweating and twitching, but she's got nowhere to go and nothing to do with all this energy waiting to hear back about the TV show. That becomes this constant thing. Getting that first form to fill in came right away. It's that guy from Office Space who's the mailman. Oh, yeah. And then she sends it in, and then it takes a while to hear back. Weeks and months eventually start going by, and then it becomes this I know when endless you, nightmare of waiting for this thing. When the phone call happens, first time watching this, it doesn't even feel like it's real, you know? Yeah, and that's something that's, again, never really that clear how real it is. Mm-hmm. I think it is real, but it's real in the sense that it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Like, there's a good chance that she'll never be on TV. Like, they just they want just... to get information from people, and then maybe you right. might get picked one day to be on a game show or something. Uh-huh. It's like their mailing list. But then BS. in her distorted mind, it becomes that she's destined to appear on this Tappy Tibbins infomercial, which is not a game show. Mm-hmm. But somehow that becomes what she thinks she's going to be on for some reason, because it's like the only thing she watches. I don't know. I know. I did have to put a note. These junkies have the hottest fucking girlfriends, by the way. <laughs> yeah. You got Jennifer Conley. I don't have the other young lady's name. I mean, here, that's but... the stark reality of when you start talking about this stuff and having it portrayed in movies is like, junkies don't look like movie stars generally. Right. Junkies oh, oh. don't have this kind of yeah. action going on. Harry comes to visit his mother, and she is so manic and over the top that it's obvious something is amiss. When Harry recognizes the signs of her drug abuse and implores her to stop taking the amphetamines, Sarah insists that the chance to appear on television and the increased admiration from her friends are her remaining reasons to live. Yeah, Harry, there's definitely like a shift in him being very caring and endearing towards his mom, which is not really how the movie starts out. Well, he was desperate for a fix, and when he comes to see her at this point, things are going well. That's right. Yeah, it's sort of the power of Are you the addiction. Uppers, Ma? I can hear you grinding your teeth from over here. Aronofsky says the scene where Harry goes to visit Sarah was his favorite scene in Selby Jr.'s novel. It was the scene that ultimately motivated Aronofsky to make the film, and it is his favorite moment in the finished film. Aronofsky feels the scene is representative of the whole story, how it's about the difficulty addicts find connecting with the people they love. The scene has three sections, the light side when things are pleasant at the beginning, the dark side when the two begin to argue after Harry finds Sarah's drugs, and back to the light side when Sarah makes her confession at the end. Aronofsky sees Ellen Burstyn capturing this performance in this scene as his proudest moment. He also notes all of Burstyn's performance in the confession moment was from one single take, She actually did three takes, but she did each one differently. They ultimately could not be combined or cut together. What is the big deal about being on television? Those pills you take are going to kill you before you ever get on, for Christ's sake. Big deal? You drove up in a cab? Did you see who had the best seat? I'm somebody now, Harry. Everybody likes me. Soon, 
Millions of people will see me and they'll all like me. I'll tell them about you, your father, how good he was to us. Remember? It's a reason to get up in the morning. It's a reason to lose weight, to fit in a red dress. It's a reason to smile. It makes tomorrow all right. What have I got, Harry? Hmm? Why should I even make the bed or wash the dishes? I do them. But why should I? I'm alone. Your father's gone. You're gone. I got no one to care for. What have I got, Harry? I'm lonely. I'm old. You got friends, Ma? Uh, it's not the same. They don't need me. I like the way I feel. I like thinking about the red dress and the television and you and your father. Now when I get the sun, I smile. This is the centerpiece of the film in a lot of ways. and It's become legend because during her impassioned monologue about how it feels to be old... Cinematographer Matthew Libatique accidentally let the camera drift off target. Yes. When Aronofsky called cut and confronted him about it, he realized the reason was that Libatique had been crying during Mm -hmm. the take and fogged up the camera's eyepiece. And then they used this take in the final print. And if you pay attention, she does go out of focus a little bit. It's actually pretty noticeable. Yeah. Because they cut back to Harry who's completely crystal clear and focused and then sometimes it goes to her and she's out of focus and then you find out the reason is that she was so convincing in this scene that she's getting tears from the crew that's right (laughs) I did know that I did read that before but I I had since forgotten about it that is like a powerful moment it's a devastating scene I think it really encapsulates how a lot of the elderly feel even if you subtract the drug stuff from Mm -hmm. the movie. Like, if you subtract the TV stuff, like, oh, she's going to be on television, or, oh, the drug stuff, it really just digs down deep into how people who are maybe towards the end of their lives, if they are widowed or otherwise alone, and maybe their kids don't visit them that often, or whatever, you just don't really have anything. She doesn't have a job. Her friends are all kind of like her. They're not like bad people, but they're not really like real friends. And The big social event is sitting in folding chairs out in front of their apartment building waiting for the mail to be delivered. I wish I had that yeah. much going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have Harry crying in the cab afterwards, and then his big solution to this feeling that he has now is to buy her a big screen TV. Enormous terrifying black speakers yeah Mm -hmm. it's menacing almost it doesn't seem to even fit in this world and this is a clue that it probably does take place more in the 90s or 2000s just because they didn't really have this the technology but 
it's interesting though because it doesn't feel like it fits in this world. Definitely. Most of everything else you're seeing in this world doesn't seem congruent with that. Just as Tyrone is being given the opportunity to rise up in the criminal underworld, he's caught in a shootout between the drug traffickers he works with and the Sicilian mafia, and he is arrested despite his relative innocence, Mm -hmm. I guess you would say. In a surprising moment, I'd say. And that's when the title Fall literally crashes down Uh onto the screen, and it's definitely a, a crash of dread and you can sense that things are about to take a turn which honestly isn't surprising but not necessarily welcomed i guess as time passes sarah becomes frantic waiting for the invitation to appear on television to arrive and she increases her dosage because she's not getting high anymore which causes her to start to develop amphetamine psychosis she hallucinates herself on tv with tappy tibbins juice by sarah juice by sarah (laughs) Oh. <laughs> she's got red hair except it's actually the red she was looking for mm-hmm. that matches the red dress and it's almost this idealized version of Sarah she looks like Ellen Burstyn a lot younger and it kind of speaks to the power of makeup and Definitely. how this all works because she looks the same but so much younger right. and different in her apartment she's completely terrorized by the fridge now and I think that her journey is uh, equal parts heartbreaking and terrifying. It's scary. Definitely. It's scary how fast this could happen and how easy it could happen, but it's also so sad. And a difficult life she's living at this point. I know that it's not necessarily the message of the film, and people might have pushed back to this, but at a certain point, it's just so much better to be addicted to food. <laughs> like Definitely. It wasn't like she was on Thousand Pound Sisters or whatever those TLC yeah. shows are. She was a little overweight. Yeah, I know. So what? You enjoy a pizza here and there. What, do you want to live forever? Right. <laughs> I'd rather eat a pizza and a donut. Definitely. Who cares? Yeah. Now her life is a complete disaster. <laughs> really? Harry has to use most of the saved money to spring Tyrone from jail. As a result of the gang warfare, the local supply of heroin becomes restricted. Yeah, he gets bailed out, and there's really never any, like, follow-up. No. And they're unable to find any more to buy. And this is how quickly a dream evaporates. Because instead of storing those nuts for the long winter, they Uh don't have anything left. And, of course, the unspoken thing is that, yes, he had to use a huge percentage to bail Tyrone out, but they're also constantly dipping into that money to buy heroin for themselves to use until it starts to run out and that's when things get real bad because once you start hitting those withdrawal symptoms it's not a very fun life it becomes very desperate the one primary focus that will consume everything and around this time there's the first signs of trouble with harry's arm he's starting to get some redness and some yikes lines there it looks bad Sarah returns to the doctor, and instead of the doctor recognizing that there's a huge problem here because she's completely lost and completely out of it, he basically ignores her and just gives her another prescription. Oof. When they start to run out of money, that's when Tyrone hears of a large shipment coming to New York from Florida, but the price is doubled and the minimum purchase risk is high. Harry encourages Marion to engage in sex work 
specifically with her psychiatrist Arnold as a client. Yikes. Yep. So he goes from being jealous that this is even being insinuated at all to now pushing her in that direction. And so, yes, this is painful reality part two now. Dark. He's turned on her. Mm-hmm. And it's just a sad statement on what addiction does to you and your priorities. We need the bread. Getting the money is not the problem, Harry. What is the problem, for Christ's sake? I don't know what I'm going to have to do to get it. Look, baby. We'll be back in business in no time. We'll start moving again. We'll start saving. It'll be perfect, just like it was, I promise, Marion. No, I'm just, uh, I've had this flu forever, it seems like. Are you depressed? No, it's nothing like that. I've been, um, <clears throat> I've been really busy, actually. I've been, uh, designing nonstop. That's wonderful. Glad to hear you've been productive. To be perfectly frank, I was a little surprised to hear from you. Is there something wrong? No. Why? Well, it's usually the case. When you get a call from someone you haven't heard from for a while. Everything's fine. Actually, I have a favor to ask. What is it? I need to borrow some money. May I ask what for? You can turn the light off. What do you want the light off for? I just do. Never did before. Please, Arnold. I think at this point it's safe to say that the relationship is dead, even if they don't quite know it yet. I don't mm -hmm. think there's ever a point where you come back from no. this and think things are fine again. Right. In that scene, Arnold just wolfing down food. <laughs> just inhaling that steak. Yeah. Marion has a hallucination where she grabs a fork and jams it into his hand. You wish that part was real. After Marion fucks Arnold for the money and is puking right outside his building... And Harry's fucked up and shame-spiraling, and Tyrone mournfully stares at a picture of his mother, and Sarah's completely gone, disappeared into a drug-fueled reality, done up garishly, like straight out of whatever happened to baby Jane. Oh, yes. You think, this has to be rock bottom. It can't get any worse. But, but oh, wait, no. there's more. Not by a long shot. <laughs> <laughs> the heroin shipment that arrives in New York, descends into total chaos, shots are fired. Harry and Tyrone have to make a run for it. They don't score. 
this information does not go over well with Marion. <laughs> no. Who basically was just done fucking gargling acid to get the taste of Arnold's cock out of her mouth. <laughs> well, you know, you I have know. to do the worst thing imaginable because you want to score and you give them this money and they come back and they don't have heroin. Right. Yeah. She lets Harry know that she's disappointed. <laughs> you fucking loser. Yeah, Harry and Marion are screaming at each other. He then gives her Big Tim's phone number, who's a yeah. guy holding up in New York City. Harry now just willing to pimp her all around town. But only gives it up for pussy, as Tyrone put it. So he's like, fine, here you go. Here's a phone number. Aronofsky wanted Florida to become a character in the film. In Selby Jr.'s novel, a lot of text and inner monologue is devoted to the character's desires to get to Florida, believing it to be the answer to their prayers. Unable to include inner monologues and unwilling to throw in needless exposition, Aronofsky added little moments here and there that make you think of Florida. The Florida orange on the side of the semi-trailer truck is just one. There are several other instances scattered throughout the film. This is also a little bit of a Godfather nod, which we talked about. Mm. How oranges and orange was always a precursor to doom. Oh, yeah. But yeah, they talk about Florida. They eventually try to go to Florida. Right. The shipment comes from Florida. And then the big oranges on the trucks and the whole thing. Sarah's increased dosage of amphetamines distorts her sense of reality. And she begins to hallucinate that she is mocked by Tappy and the studio audience from the television show, and also that she is being attacked by her refrigerator. Tappy, along with Sarah's idealized version of herself, teleport from off of the TV and into Sarah's living room. This is very interesting and weird, because when they do, they don't look like real people. They right. still look like pixelated, like they're from the TV. <laughs> yeah, and they're making fun of her apartment and the things in her apartment and how she's such a loser and all Not these a, different things. Uh, desirable situation to be watching tv and have the characters come off the tv just to ridicule you unless you're into that kind of thing well yeah which i am her apartment starts being broken down by a television crew and turned into a studio and the frantic pace and the running around it actually really gave me deja vu of that mulholland drive ending with yeah. Naomi watts running around and this movie came out a year before that not saying that it's that close, like a right. ripoff or anything, but it's definitely like reminiscent of the same feel to definitely. it. So you're probably thinking, well, fall sucked, <laughs> but here comes winter. Oh, boy. Fall was a lot shorter than summer, but now we're into winter, and the film gets harder and harder to watch, pushing onward deeper and deeper, heading toward the inevitable, horrifying conclusion. I think the first time you experience Requiem for a Dream, it does almost have that car crash feel where you can't Absolutely. look away you're just yeah. sort of sucked into it like how bad is this going to get right if i had known how bad it was going to get i would have been looking away because there are things that i couldn't unsee yeah i guess we're trained as audiences sometimes to expect that things could still work out somehow even though with time and experience you understand that there are certain thresholds that once you pass them they probably aren't going to work out. Sure. <laughs> and I think this movie has passed several already. Definitely. Although, yeah, it's hard to even predict how bad it's going to get. Mm -hmm. Harry and Tyrone ultimately do drive to Florida to buy heroin directly from the wholesaler. While that's happening, Sarah flees her apartment on foot. 
no coat, no shoes, looking completely insane, heading to the casting office in Manhattan to confirm when she will be on television. Sarah's disturbed state causes the people in the office to call for help, and she's admitted to a psychiatric ward. This is very painful, especially when you factor in the audience perspective versus the people Sarah is actually encountering, as if they were real people in real life. Because we know that some of what she's saying is true. Mm -hmm. And we're like, okay, this is a big misunderstanding. She's obviously got this drug problem now, but she thought she was going to be on television. That's real, we think. We saw her get a phone call and hand in the stuff. Got a package. All of a sudden, some of what she's saying is strictly fantasy or delusion, even from Mm -hmm. our perspective. Uh, Yep. At one point, she's talking about having a grandson, which we know she doesn't have. She's talking about her husband still being alive, which we know is not true. It starts getting all mixed up and spread out all over the place. She looks, for lack of a better way of saying it, like a crazy old lady who doesn't have any fucking clue what's going on. Absolutely. Wandering out into the world. She's saying, we're not even going to keep the prizes. We just want to be on TV. I mean, it gets sadder and sadder, everything she's saying. Seriously. I'm crumbling. It's going haunting. Back over this. Yes. It's, it's a haunting section of the film because... She went from being rational, normal. Look, she was a little bit naive about what her son was up to and what was going on in his life and how dark that really was. And she was in denial, obviously. She knew that he was pawning her television, Mm -hmm. but she seemed to be in denial as to why. But she was still pretty functional and normal. And now this is beyond the pale. Marion gives in and calls Big Tim. Mm-hmm. It was played by Keith David. Just a haunting laugh. She does not know that Harry went to Florida. This is in the aftermath of their fight when they didn't score. So she feels abandoned too, especially when she finds out that he's not going to be back anytime soon because she doesn't really know what to do. Thank God I've never gone through a heroin withdrawal, so I don't know, but it seems like it could be the worst thing imaginable. And if you have that outlet, if you have any escape from it, you're eventually going to yeah. do it. And she does. And she calls. I think like the small scale uh, version of it is when you want fast food, but the fast food restaurants nearby are closed. I know. Post COVID, they're just never open 24 hours now. And that's a hard adjustment to make. Just think about that feeling and then times it by a million. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. They should times their feeling by a million. <laughs> You don't know what it's like. I'm living like Sarah Goldfarb a little bit. I don't ever really keep that much food in the apartment. Yeah, I know. So thank God there's a 24-hour like, sheet. we got to get done recording so I can make it to Burger I keep King. looking at the time like, oh, my God. <laughs> the drive through's only open for five more hours. We better hurry up. <laughs> I'm already planning before we record our next right. episode right after this. I'm like, do we have to get food in between? Yeah. This is... I feel like a safe space for us to admit stuff. And mm-hmm. when you're a dumb kid, you do sort of find the humor in some of this shit. So, of course, we thought Big Tim's laugh was funny. And because <laughs> oh, yeah. it's so sinister. I know. Because she calls, he answers. She doesn't say anything. She hangs up. Right. A minute later, she calls again and he's like more annoyed. And then when she finally says something, it's like a whisper. Uh-huh. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> he knows exactly what's happening. It's so gross. I know. Because you take this these girls that are desperate for drugs, and it's like, well, they're going to do whatever you want now to get that score. 
So I actually really like the name Marion. I just think that's like a nice name, but I just will forever think of <laughs> Maid Marion. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that's the nickname. Oof. She has to go over and, and bl- I guess she, it seems like she's just blowing him. And then, of course, he's like fully nude later. So I guess the implication is that they do everything. Well, maybe he had to get fully nude to be comfortable. <laughs> no, I think they go the yeah, full. I think so the full route there and then in the aftermath this is one of the other famous little tidbits about requiem for a dream it's about an hour and 22 minutes in there's a shot of marion in the bathtub Mm -hmm. followed by her like overhead right very specific looking and then it's followed by her screaming underwater where she puts her head into the water and screams it was an exact replica of a scene in the japanese animated thriller perfect blue Which, for people in that world, that's one of those famous movies. Aronofsky went so far as to secure the rights to a live-action remake version of that just to be able to include this shot. Oh, wow. Because he knew he was just stealing it straight up, so he just got the rights to do it. Cool. (laughs) The hooks are in. Mm -hmm. And she's so naive to think that they're not. I know. She's like, I'm not really that addicted. He's like, okay, I know, baby. I know. He's like, I got a party coming up on Sunday for a real nice taste. All good people. <laughs> you know, the oh, type yeah. of good people that right. would be in something like this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's grim. We should do like a ranking of who do we think is in the worst situation at the end of the movie. Yeah, it's always just an interesting really, conversation. <laughs> just like BuzzFeed, top five worst endings for <laughs> characters in Requiem for a Dream. No, I'm trivializing it to be funny. On the way to Florida, Harry's arm has become gangrenous, and Tyrone has no choice but to take him to the hospital. And yes, when Harry shoots up in that infected arm oh. that's like so fucked up looking, oh. that's like something you feel like in your asshole. Ah, like, I know. It, you know, it just like your whole Bristling. body yeah. cringes involuntarily. Like, right. ugh. There's something so real about that. You want something so bad, even though you shouldn't. Well, yeah, there's that thing of like, well, fuck it. In a few seconds, I'm going to feel great. Right. So just do it and get it over with. We alluded to this earlier. I don't really know what to make of it other than to say I think that in the South, in decades prior, this was probably a possibility. But I'm only taking that from movies and exploitation movies and drive-in movies and even some mainstream movies, the idea that you could just be thrown in jail for anything. But in the year 2000, of course, this would not happen. Right. The doctor realizes that Harry is a drug addict, calls the police, resulting in Harry and Tyrone being arrested. I don't know what their charges are. It's never really specified. Maybe they had heroin on them. Although it seems unlikely because they weren't able to score. Well, yeah, well, but he, he shoots. does some. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, they don't ever explain that. They're yeah. going down to Florida to score, but they do it on the way. Right. Or maybe they're on their way back, but I think they're on the way still. I always took it that they were on their way there. So, yeah, as I was saying, Selby Jr. wrote the novel in 78 when medical facilities were inadequate and often abusive and uncaring of their patients. This film specifically does not mention the era it's set, but if you do pay attention, there is a reference to pop star Madonna. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely post-mid-80s. And I think that the big screen TV and some of that stuff indicates that it is kind of more present day for the year 2000. Agree. And the film was criticized for showing medical institutions 
in a bad light, which I think is fair, even though I think they were going for a more ambiguous time period and they uh-huh. they were just kind of staying true to the novel. But I think it's kind of fair because I don't think that medical institutions would act as bad as they are in this movie. Yeah. Because it's a fucking They're nightmare. They're all pretty evil. Every... Especially to Sarah. Public service type. Every police officer, medical person, they all seem very menacing in this. Yeah, because now that Sarah is in the psychiatric ward, it's very dehumanizing. The treatment is terrible. She's being force-fed. Now, the doctor that she has recognized him as also being the doctor in Blue Valentine that Michelle Williams is, like, working for. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) I was like, wait, I recognize this dude. He portrays a convincing doctor. Yeah. Sarah fails to respond to various medications tried by the doctor, and so she undergoes electroconvulsive therapy instead. Horrifying. Uh Uh-huh. Just wait for me, all right? Okay. I'm coming back, Marion. Yeah. Marion? Yeah. I'm really sorry, Marion. I know. for the gig for Big Tim, who is essentially a pimp, and she performs degrading sex acts with other women just for dope. Of course, there's the famous ass-to-ass yeah. line, which I guess was an improv by that guy, just throwing that out there. Wild. Another thing that's become famous from this movie. Then they're yelling, come, uh-huh. come, come, come. Weird. Uh, just dudes in suits <laughs> holding they- wads of cash. But I mean, it, is it is intense. It is definitely realistic seeming. Yeah, who who goes to these parties? And I think I did see a note yeah. somewhere that Aronofsky just casually throws out in one of his commentaries that this was based off of some event that he was actually at. No further explanation <laughs> was It was like, wait, what? I know. <laughs> oh god. I don't know. It's the dark underbelly of some world that you and I are not welcome at when thankfully so. Well, look. In a more sex-positive era that we're in now, where having an OnlyFans isn't the end of the world. Definitely. I have no problem with this, but obviously extorting and exploiting someone's addiction for them to do it, and it's horrifying. Sarah's treatment 
leaves her in a dissociated, catatonic, near-vegetative state to the horror of her friends who weep and try to comfort each other on a park bench outside the hospital. That's a tough scene to watch for me, too. Harry's arm is amputated above the elbow, and he breaks down in tears after he realizes that Marion won't be there Just to visit him. graphically amputated, too, with one of those circle saw. Yeah. Oof. Tyrone is subjected to grueling labor and psychological abuse from the racist prison guards, all while experiencing a painful heroin withdrawal. Yeah, I can actually remember having the whose situation ends up worse conversation with my friends, and everyone just sort of agrees that Tyrone's is the best situation, which is still not great, but compared to these other people, yeah, just being in jail seems okay. We'll get to that in a second, because I think Aronofsky kind of agrees. Marion returns home after doing what she had to do and lies on her sofa, clutching her precious score of heroin. Mm Mm-hmm surrounded by her crumpled and discarded clothing designs. All four of the main characters are then shown curling into the fetal position. Yes. Hers is even more haunting than the other ones, though, because of the clutching of the little bag of heroin. Yeah, she seems happy. I know. like She's happy. She's not in a situation where she can't do it. Right. The other two who were addicted are... In jail and going mm-hmm. through some version of withdrawal, one loses his arm for yeah. it. And Sarah is in just another world at this point. Right. She's never going to be the same. So she doesn't even know what's going on. Whereas Marion's still out there with it enough to keep scoring and keep doing the heroin. delightful personality straight from brighton beach brooklyn please give a juicy welcome to mrs sarah Goldberg. i'm delighted to tell you that you have just won the grand prize now let me tell you what you want your prize is a sweet smile in his own private business he just got engaged and is about to get married this summer Will you please give a warm and juicy welcome, Harry Goldfarb! Juice by Harry, juice by Harry, juice by Harry. Oh, Harry got juice, Harry got juice. Oh, Harry. I love you, Harry. I love you too, Mom. Sarah has one last fantasy of being on Tappy's infomercial. She's a beautiful game show winner with Harry, who is married and successful, arriving as a guest. Sarah and Harry lovingly embrace. And that's the end of the picture. Aronofsky, reading the novel, being a fan of the novel and adapting it, wasn't sure what Harry's ultimate fate was, and he asked Selby if Harry lived or died, and Selby said, of course Harry lives because it has to keep getting worse. I know. It'll just keep getting worse as if it wasn't bad enough already. Haranofsky basically agreed with you. He said that Tyrone is still in a position to reclaim his life and that it's actually kind of a positive that he still thinks of his mother while in jail. So he still has this Mm -hmm. goal that is outside of the twisted little drug world that they've built for themselves. It's something else. 
But yeah, it seems that Sarah is at a point where it's too late. Harry, it's not too late, but he has damage that is irreparable. Oh, yeah. Obviously. And Marion, unfortunately, as bad as it seems, is not at rock bottom. That's It's bad, but that's not rock bottom. Because yeah. you can go way further, way further well, down. Well, her and Harry, if they were able to get on the right track, the psychological beatdown of what they've done and what's happened to them is well, very hard to recover well, from. Well, she doesn't have the physical damage, though. And right. There are people who are her and yeah. recover and definitely get off drugs and sure. turn their lives around. I mean, obviously you're at risk for STDs and, and stuff like that, but yeah, as far as we know, she doesn't have anything physically. So yeah, you'd have to, you'd have to go to therapy in mm-hmm. addition to getting off drugs, but yeah, it's not inconceivable sure, sure. that she could still turn around, but Sarah, it's definitely too late. And mm-hmm. Harry, it seems like it's probably too late because I think in addition to getting off heroin, which a lot of time leads to crippling depression, you already are going to have the thing with your arm, and that's not going to make you happy either. No. So it's going to be a rough road. It's a dark film. I don't know that this you would categorize this one as a rewatchable. But just that whole ending sequence with all of these things happening, the supercuts, the dun-dun, dun-dun, dun-dun. <laughs> you walk away from this, your heart's beating. What the hell did I just watch? I mean, like I said, it doesn't pack the same punch as it did for me 20 years ago. But I'll tell you what, that first time I ever watched this, it was like, good Lord, did it have an impact? Yeah, I think when you haven't experienced as many things in your own life and you haven't seen as many films, those two factors right there, it's way more jarring. Oh, yeah. As you said, suburban kid, and it's just like, this is far from my reality. Yeah, so... In summation, drugs are bad. Yes, thank Try you. Try not to Summing go down it up. that road right. if you can help it. Please. Although, no judgment. Go ahead and do whatever you want. I don't give a shit. <laughs> sure. Sometimes it's probably worth just saying, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this does not seem like a fun path, though. No. No. Well, if you're going to do heroin, just please snort it. Don't yeah. get involved with the needles. Mm-hmm. Please. Nothing good can come from that. Right. Do you want to lose an arm? Ooh. Although, if it got me dating Jennifer Connelly. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're sending them a mixed message to <laughs> really? cre- creepy losers like us. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So I think that'll do it for Requiem for a Dream. If you haven't seen it, you can check it out on any of those various streaming platforms where it's free. It's a, a powerful movie that came out in that era with Nolan and a lot mm-hmm. of those other guys we were just like, oh shit, like Memento and Requiem. It seemed like I was seeing all of these things around the same time right? and being introduced to a lot of different filmmakers. And it definitely seemed like that was all of a generation definitely. right there. And who knows, because with the quickness that a lot of these guys are sucked into the Disney castle. Oh yeah. I don't know if there will be like that sort of indie generation of guys who make a bunch of different films Yes, like this. Especially this envelope pushing. Yeah, I'll have to try to check out The Whale at some point. I've avoided it for no other reason than it, it's hard to get to the theater for whatever reason. We used to do it all the time. Now it just never happens. Mm-hmm. And also, I don't know. It just wasn't really grabbing me as something I wanted to watch. It seems like it's probably also very depressing. 
Yeah, and you can only do so much of it. I spent like a good chunk of my life being mostly drawn to depressing movies. So it's yeah. like, you know, I'm trying to work my way out of that. Plus also there is a possibility that the whale will hit too close to home for me. <laughs> and me. <laughs> Folks. What are you doing? What? <clears throat> what? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. All right, so let's do a brief recommendation. Do you have anything specific? I'll do, because I just started rewatching it, HBO miniseries, uh, Sharp Objects, which we did a give us a second on years ago, but... I just yeah, we did the finale. I have to say, I think it's my favorite TV thing over the. I don't know if is it has it been more than five years? Was it twenty seventeen? Yeah, we're probably coming up on the sixth anniversary this year. Within the past five or so years, I'll say it's probably my favorite TV thing that's happened. Yeah, obviously we've done a lot of. I can't remember how to say her name. Is it Gillian Flynn or Gillian oh yeah yeah? Flynn? I, we've debated before. I well, think. they have. They say her name right in. Glass Onion, and I think they say it wrong. Okay. And she was, like, joking about it on Twitter. I think I always would have thought it was Jillian, so it's probably Gillian. Anyway, you know, we like her stuff. Right. Gone Girl. Yeah. Sharp Objects. She worked on the script for Widows and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, we like that. I I think it's a, a reminder of how awesome Amy Adams is, one of Definitely. our our great actresses out there. Yeah, it was it, a really fun miniseries. Yeah, I mean, the acting was great. Great music throughout, too, like the Led Zeppelin songs. But music is like really wide ranging on it. There's like classical, unsettling score music that plays. I mean, it was just a really cool experience. And going back and revisiting it has been an enjoyable experience for me. Yeah, that was one of those instances where we weren't even really planning on doing that as a give us a second. And then we were just so caught off guard by I mean, that finale where yeah. we're like, we should just record something speaking of endings that pack a powerful punch definitely that series yeah it's a bummer the director jean-marc valet died i know in 2021 actually on christmas day believe wow. it or not and he also did the first season of mm-hmm. big little lies and then kind of came in and, and did the second season as well a little bit he also directed some movies Dallas Buyers Club, I think, and Wild right, with Reese Reese and Demolition with Jake Gyllenhaal and stuff like that. Things kind of get lost over time quicker than ever now. So if you never watch that, you should definitely, definitely do it. My recommendation is the revival of Party Down, Mm -hmm. which just started the other day on Stars with the first episode. I don't know what people's reactions are to this first episode. I, I briefly looked into the reviews real fast, and I I saw some mixed reviews, and I, I thought it was funny. Yeah, yeah. It's a little disappointing that Lizzie Kaplan doesn't really seem like she's going to be a part of it. I guess mm-hmm. there was a scheduling conflict because they had to delay the whole thing because of COVID in the first place and all that stuff. So whatever ended up happening. It seems pretty meta where they keep referencing that she's too good for them in <laughs> right. various ways. and. Stuff like that. Ken Marino is just always good. He yeah. He always brings it. He effortlessly returns to the role of Ron Donald. I don't know how many people are familiar with Party Down. I think it's become pretty culty, so I guess most people know about it because yeah, it was yeah. available to stream on many platforms for a while. 
I don't know maybe if Stars has reined it in where it's only on there now, but I don't know. So they brought it back. I think they're only doing maybe six episodes. It's not a lot. Yeah. They only aired one so far. I enjoyed it. They did it in a way where I I don't want to give anything away, but it was a fun little way to end the first episode where it sets up for what's going to come next. And look, I think the first two seasons, which now at this point are over 10 years old, I think, what was it, 2008, 2009 or something something like like that? that. It was a long time ago now with Adam Scott, Lizzie Kaplan, Martin Starr, Jane Lynch is in the first season, and Megan Mullally is in the second season, and Ken Marino, whoever. I thought it was a masterpiece. I thought it was one of the funniest shows. Of course, Mm -hmm. it didn't have an audience. It got canceled. Jane Lynch went to Glee. So it actually predates Glee. That's how old it is. Parks and Rec. Yeah, Adam Scott goes to Parks and Rec. That's how old it is. I know. They've brought it back because it's one of those things where it was available on DVD and then streaming places and it caught on and it's become a cult classic. And I don't know. I'm just happy that it's back. Yeah. If it's disappointing in the long run, I'll kind of just shrug it off. It's not really going to affect my I don't know. feelings of the first two, but I liked the first episode. Yeah. Based on that first episode, I think they were able to pretty much recapture what made the original run fun. Right. Yeah. I would agree with that. So. Yeah, if you like the original and were unaware, the revival is on Stars. Which, look, I know most people might might not have Stars, but it's very cheap, and you can usually get a deal for where it's like one ninety nine a month for six months or something. I don't How about know. this as an advertisement for Stars? Well, I'm just saying. Yeah, I was about to cancel it <laughs> because I wasn't using it anymore, and then I realized this was about to start up, mm-hmm. and I was like, all right, well, I'll just wait until this is over. <laughs> Well, hopefully it'll only be like another month because it's only going to do like six episodes or <laughs> right. whatever. Party Down, Sharp Objects, good TV to check out there. Follow the show on Twitter, at Greatest Pod. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. If you have not done so already, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Anything that you need to get in touch with us for, you can do so on Twitter, at Greatest Pod, whether that's a listener request, a free sticker request, Comments, questions, concerns, whatever. And please, find us on Letterboxd. Zach1983. Matt Crosby. As I've said before, if you follow us on Letterboxd because of the show, just let us know in some way and we'll get back to you with the follow and everything. Make sure that we're following our, our listeners and all that stuff. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. The plan right now is for there to be another episode later this week, so stay tuned, as always, and we'll talk to you shortly.
You really are the most devious bastard in New York City.